Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm David Asman. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Jimmy Fallon. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, November 30th, 2023. I'm Lisa Brady. It's Florida versus California as their governors face off in prime time tonight on Fox News Channel. There's a stark, stark contrast uh, between these two states, and you're going to see that uh, in the debate. We speak with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. I'm Dave Anthony. More than a year and a half after he was nearly killed, reporting from the war front in Ukraine, Fox correspondent Benjamin Hall went back. This whole idea that recovery is about a journey and it's about getting somewhere. And one of the places I want to get to is back to work, doing what I was doing before and sending the message that it doesn't matter what you throw at me, it doesn't matter how injured I am, we're coming back. Journalism won't stop. And I'm Stephen Moore. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Less than 50 days until the Iowa caucuses, the first test of the 2024 presidential primary season, with a narrowing field of Republican candidates trying to make their case. When it comes to reviving our national character and leading by example for the next generation who is lost in the wilderness... I can bear that responsibility in a way that nobody else in this race can. Vivek Ramaswamy has been barnstorming the state this week, holding a flurry of town halls and opening his Iowa headquarters, while former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis battle for second place in many polls behind former President Trump. DeSantis recently picked up the backing of a key evangelical leader, Bob Vanderplatz, president and CEO of The Family Leader. I think he has the fundamentals to win an Iowa caucus. And I think the more this takes place now, the more people galvanize and come on his side on his behalf. I think it's a great opportunity to up in the former president in the Hawkeye state. Tonight, DeSantis will debate a Democrat who's not running for president at this point, California Governor Gavin Newsom, with Fox's Sean Hannity monitoring what he's calling a red state versus blue state debate. It absolutely is about how our states are run. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds has endorsed Governor Ron DeSantis for president. And I think if you look at Republican governors uh, in states across the country, you'll see a great uh, alternative to the chaos crisis and overreach that we've seen uh, from not only the Biden administration, but Democratic governors. I mean, the policy, the results, they speak for themselves. And it's like night and day uh, what we're seeing in states like Florida under Governor DeSantis's leadership. Uh, they mirror a lot of the same results that we've seen in Iowa, and it is a stark, stark contrast to what we've seen from the Biden administration and what we're seeing from Democratic uh, governors across the across the country. Do you think what you're describing is kind of a good news story is is why Governor DeSantis agreed to do this? Has he spoken to you about that? Well, listen, I think he sees it as an opportunity to really reach out to the voters to showcase what that alternative looks like. 
to showcase the policy that he's put in place uh, in the state of Florida. And what I respect and admire about him, he's followed through with 100 percent of the promises that he made to the voters when he ran for reelection in 2020, 2022, and he, 2018. And then he did it and was easily won in 2022 by 20 percent of the vote. So uh, I think it's an opportunity to showcase the difference. I think it's an opportunity to highlight the policy contrast. But again, I want to go back to the fact that it will highlight the results, whether it's the economy, crime, budget, uh, educational choice, parental rights, unemployment, population migration into the state and population migration out of the state, jobs created. I mean, just the way that we handled COVID by keeping the economy open and our kids in the classroom. There's a stark, stark contrast uh, between these two states. And you're going to see that uh, in the debate. It seems like this has the potential for risks and rewards for both of them, though, um, with this debate. What about the timing for Governor DeSantis? He's campaigning hard ahead of the Iowa caucuses and, you know, really in the midst of trying to gain ground. Well, actually, I, you know, I've been on the road with him a couple different times. I spent a day with him doing several events. Uh, turnout was great. The interests were great. A lot of people that were, you know, looking at Trump or weren't quite sure whether they, you know, were you know, ready to go with Governor DeSantis. And by the end, I couldn't believe the number of people that came up and had said, hey, you've got me. I'm on board. They took the sign. They they signed up to caucus. And it is, you know, his opportunity, again, to talk about what he's done, that he's cut taxes. He's kept spending in check. He's reduced uh, the debt in Florida by 25 percent. I mean, that if that's not what we need out in Washington, D.C., I don't know what else we need. But just his ability and his knowledge about the issues and just the variety of questions that he gets asked, uh, I can tell you that that's playing out in his favor in the state of Iowa. He's the only candidate that's put in the time he's gone to will have gone to all 99 counties. So he's had similar conversations in small towns and big towns and and people are showing up. And, and to be honest, Honest, I've said this, uh, you know, I, as I, from a governor's perspective, uh, what he does—he doesn't take on small things. He takes on big things. He's been tested. He's disciplined. He's bold, uh, and he's probably probably one of the most effective leaders uh, that I've seen in a long, long time. We need somebody that can step in on day one, but most importantly, get the country back on track and then be able to be that strong leader for eight years and not one, not or, and not just a four year term and somebody that basically becomes a lame duck on on day one. You did break tradition, though, right, by making um, any endorsement um, ahead of the caucuses. And really, Nikki Haley is the one of late who's had some momentum in the polls. What made DeSantis a better fit for your endorsement? How do you convince voters to make that same choice or in this case, caucus goers? Yeah. Well, you know, we take our First of the Nation caucus very seriously. As a governor, I, I wanted to make sure to welcome all of the candidates to Iowa to give them a platform to share their message and vision uh, with Iowans about why they thought they were the best candidate to be the Republican nominee for, for president. And for seven months, they did that. I, I, I hosted all of them with a fair side chat that that wanted to participate. Almost all of them did. Um, and, and I watched Iowans showed up. They, they made their pitch 
the field has started to narrow. And, you know, as I continue to see what was happening to this country and what I continue to see what was happening around the world, I am a mother and I am a grandmother. And I just decided that I couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore, that there was absolutely too much at stake. Uh, when I made the decision that Ron was the guy that I knew could follow through and do what we needed to do, uh, then I just I made the decision to get on board and to do everything I can uh, to help him be successful in Iowa. But that means you know, sharing his message. I'm sharing you know, what he's done, what he will continue to do. And I think that's what you're going to hear uh, during the debate with uh, Ga- uh, Governor Newsom and, and Governor DeSantis. I mean, again, I mean, they've had over 600, si- over 600,000 people move into Florida in 2022. California's lost 600,000. I mean, just the, the statistics, uh, Ron in, in Florida, they ended fiscal year 23 with an $18 billion surplus. The taxes, I think they tax in California, they tax the top income tax rate for small businesses is 13.3% at zero in Florida. I mean, the list is long. I can go on and on and on and on. It's just a lot of different reasons. But I mean, people, people vote with their feet. They're leaving California. They're moving to Florida. And there's a reason that they're doing that. So we can talk about all we want to talk about. But, you know, they look at their pocketbook. They look at what the environment looks like. Uh, and they make a decision on where they want to be. And, and uh, it's not California. And it's not a lot of the blue states. It is the Republican-led, we, Republican-led states. We're not Florida. But I'm proud to say, you know, for the first time in a decade, we're actually seeing significant net migration into our state. And I think it's reflective of the policies and the the environmental climate that we put in place uh, that, that it is attracting people to our state. Governor DeSantis was recently endorsed by the CEO of the family leader, Bob Vanderplatz, considered, uh-huh. considered an influential evangelical leader. Um, Nikki Haley, though, just picked up the backing of the Koch brothers, Super PAC, and their, you know, grassroots, grassroots network. Could either one of those things help either one of them more than the other on the ground in Iowa? Well, I definitely think that uh, Bob Vanderplatt's endorsement of the family leader of Ron DeSantis is more effective. I think you've got a lot of people in Iowa. I don't think that's the the decision by the Koch brothers doesn't reflect what we're seeing on the ground. I mean, we were a blue state. We were a purple state. I won by 19 points this last election in 2018. I barely made it across the finish line. It was a horrible year for Republicans. I think I won by a little under 2%. Uh, go back to Governor DeSantis. He won by less than 1%. Again, he came back in 2022 after a record of success, won by 20, 20%. I came back in 2022 after a record of success and won by 19%. We are both solid red. We have brought new demographics uh, to the table. He won in areas that, you know, that uh, Republicans have never won in Florida. Uh, I carried all but about four counties in the state of Iowa. So I think uh, that that's reflective of our state. And um, I, I'm not so I think that Bob Vanderplatz and the evangelical community uh, that will be a that's a really big endorsement for Governor DeSantis. Again, they they show up. They participate in the caucus. Uh, Ron did a great job at the family leader, leader event. Uh, I thought he just just really he one, I thought he did a phenomenal job, and I think uh, that'll pay real dividends. I will say, though, I, I mean, 
Iowans are very independent. Um, so, you know, well, endorsements are great, but they, we've been doing this for a long time. They take it very seriously. They're very knowledgeable on the issues. You can tell that by the sophistication and the questions that they ask the candidates. And I just always am so impressed by that. So uh, they, I've continued to see large numbers at the events that I go to. They're still weighing. We tend to break late in Iowa. So I know everybody, you know, thinks, you know, if 45 days, uh, you know, there's still a lot of time and people are still listening. We tend to break late. There's a lot of time left to get out there and make your case. And so I think he's doing exactly what he needs to be doing. I mean, it can be said, though, right, that usually someone doesn't have the size of the lead that former President Trump has in most of the polling. If you look at the national polls, I don't think I don't believe them. First of all, I don't think it's reflecting. This isn't a national race. It's a caucus. And so I think it's very misleading. And um, so I just I tell everybody I talk to, don't pay any attention to the polls. I don't think it's reflective of what I'm seeing on the ground and hasn't been for a long time. Uh, I have had so many people come up and say, you know, I just really respect the president, what he's done, but it is time for change. We need somebody for eight years. We need new leadership. It's just a different day. Uh, And I just, you know, we just we need somebody that can focus on the future and not the past and uh, somebody that'll follow through with what they say they'll do and that really will put America first. And I hear that over and over and over now, you know, and, and he, and, and so I, I, I do believe that there's a, an opportunity and I do believe that uh, it is going to be close and that Ron will win. Is there something that after spending so much time with governor DeSantis, is there something that you think he needs to do differently or something that people are missing about him? Well, that's why I just say, you know, I just, they're just now really starting to pay attention. People are busy. We, you know, we get back to school and that, that's the other thing. People just really, you know, they run all these polls and people haven't really paid attention. And so I really try to get people just to look at his record, look at how he's followed through. Just remember, this is a guy who will be president for eight years. So we can get our country back on track, lead America's comeback, and then really take it to new heights in the second four years, just like he did down in Florida. So I think he's doing a great job of making the case. And and, uh, he's out there putting in the hard work, both him and Casey, um, you know, all the time. So they're doing what they need to be doing, what they need to be doing. And um, I think we're going to continue to see that movement as they tend to break late. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Dana Perino. This week on Perino on Politics, I talk with my very good friend, Carl Rove, and we talk all things that you need to know to be the smartest person at the holiday party if anyone asks you about politics. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. This is Stephen Moore with your Fox News commentary coming up. He was a casualty of war. Reporting on the front lines in Ukraine. The second bomb landed just by the car, the front left of the car. And that one, as you said earlier... That one almost almost killed me. That was Benjamin Hall on our podcast back in March, a year after the attack killed two of his crew members, Pierre Zakshevsky and Sasha Kushnova. He was rescued and evacuated by train. And with minutes to spare, we got to the Polish prime minister's train and they carried me on 
And then began the worst 10 hours, perhaps, of all of this, because that was 10 hours without pain meds when I was just lying there, trying to control the pain, trying to think to myself, doesn't matter how you feel right now, you're alive, you're going home, you got to keep going. Fast forward to this month. Benjamin Hall climbed aboard another train. And today's the day that we're going back. Returning to the capital, Kyiv, getting a chance to sit down and interview President Volodymyr Zelensky. A growing number of Americans who think that the money being spent in Ukraine is too much, so that should be spent in America. What would your message be to them to tell them that this war does matter? I hope that Congress will help us, and I hope that the help of United States uh, will be around Ukrainian people. And I hope that the United States will be with us against Russian terrorism. And they discussed several issues related to the war. Benjamin Hall picking up where he left off. I had wanted to do that from almost right after the attack itself. I knew that I wanted to go back. After 20 months and dozens of surgeries and a lot of rehab. I knew that it was going to complete my recovery. And so that's what I felt as I was walking towards that one train that was taking me in. I felt all those feelings. And um, I wasn't sure how I would feel. And some people said, it. will you be nervous? Will you be afraid? And, and the truth is the opposite happened. I felt a real sense of strength. This whole idea that recovery is about a journey and it's about getting somewhere. And one of the places I want to get to was back to work, doing what I was doing before and sending the message that doesn't matter what you throw at me. It doesn't matter how injured I am. We're coming back. Journalism won't stop. And so on that train into Ukraine, that's exactly what I felt. You're actually doing work. You're going to Ukraine. And when you're there and you arrive and you see this now a year plus long war, what's different there do you think than when it started? First of all, when I was there in March last year, the Russian forces were surrounding Kyiv. You know, they were you know, tens of miles away, and we thought the country was going to fall. And the city itself was absolutely empty, absolutely bleak. Um, checkpoints on every road. The army were out. Well, I would tell you now, in Kyiv itself, life is back to normal. You know, the restaurants are open, uh, the economy is moving, and it's a wartime economy, but that was a great feeling. And it was a reminder that Ukraine has pushed the Russian forces out to the east. And so that was optimistic. And, and President Zelensky said it as well. He said, you can't forget the great success we had at the beginning of the war when the whole country was going to fall. That isn't happening. Yeah, we've had a lot of focus over the last, you know, six months on a counteroffensive. You know, Ukraine was going to drive Russia back, take over a lot of land. That it really hasn't gone the way people had thought or hoped, right? Yeah, and actually, for one of the first times, President Zelensky to me said, "Yes, it, we have not done as well as we had wanted to do. It was not a great success." Um, many people saw that counteroffensive as a real opportunity to send a message that. The West, the U.S. needs to keep sending weapons because, look, they have a real positive impact. Well, they didn't. They haven't taken any land back, to be honest, not much at all. Um, so that's disappointing. But what President Zelensky switched to was, yes, we didn't take much land back. We acknowledge that. But we've had great successes in the Black Sea. We've pushed Putin's navy right back out of there. We've opened the grain corridor. So he was trying to say, yes, we were not so successful. There does appear to be a stalemate in that eastern part of the country, but there have been great successes elsewhere. Yeah, but at the same time, and I know you acknowledged with him, we haven't talked about Ukraine all that much. The focus has been on Gaza, Israel, the war with Hamas, now the ceasefire, all these things. That's been a month and a half itself. Ukraine's on the back burner now. 
Mm-hmm. It was the first question I asked him as well. I said, look, you must acknowledge that the eyes of the world are looking to the Middle East. They're looking at Israel right now. He said, yes. He said, that does not help us. They are really afraid that uh, funding is already heading to Israel. Um, many artillery shells that the U.S. was sending to Ukraine, some of those have even gone to Israel. So you're seeing weapons and funding, which were going to Ukraine, now going to Israel. So he's really he was waving his arms and saying, don't forget us. And he also made a big connection saying, what is happening in Ukraine, the attack that Hamas committed, that helps Russia in a big way. Russia supported Hamas. They have sent weapons to Hamas. So this is all part of the big power play. Yes, it's happening in Israel, but Russia knows that it's benefiting them in Ukraine as well. And so he was trying to draw connections between the two and saying, we are in this battle right now between Russia, Iran, North Korea, you know, potentially China, and the other side, and you mustn't drop the ball in Ukraine because that opens up a whole lot of other problems too. Uh, this is it. This could go on for years. Oh, and I think they are. They expect it to go on for years, and so does the U.S. and so do some of the European countries as well. And President Putin has always liked the idea of a longer war. It allows him now. Once he failed to capture Kiev at the beginning, it gives him time to just rebuild his military slowly, get hundreds of thousands more troops. He's in no rush. Yeah, but at the same time, how how is Russia going to afford it? They've lost a lot more of their soldiers than they ever expected to. They still have, you know, hundreds of thousands that they can continue to call up. At what point calling up soldiers starts to affect him domestically is a big open question. How much can he get away with before people start to rise up? But there isn't much internal, um, you know, pushback against him. And he can probably go quite far. You know, they're paying decent salaries. They're still using prisoners. You know, economically, Russia isn't doing too badly. You know, they're actually, the sanctions haven't done all that much. They're still sending and selling a lot of oil and gas to China and to India and other countries. And that, the prices of those have risen a fair amount more. So one of the things Zelensky was saying, too, is the sanctions aren't working. You need uh, secondary sanctions. You need to crack down on that because, frankly, economically, Russia is handling it. It's shifted into a wartime economy as well. And that's not a real fear for them at the moment. You know, for quite a long time, President Zelensky was lauded around the world for his tough fight. Standing up, he was in public, you know, in the middle. He didn't hide in a bunker anywhere. He was always out there. Is he still popular in Ukraine? He is. Yeah, he absolutely is. And I know there's been um, a lot of talk about uh, elections which were canceled. They were supposed to be coming up, I believe, next year. Um, So some people are saying, well, look, he's taken away the elections. Um... Does everyone want him in, in, in place? I asked him about that as well. And he said, look, the elections are illegal during war. To get millions of people to vote is going to be almost impossible. The Russians will have an impact on it that it's just not feasible right now. But he was open for it. So there has been a corruption issue which did hurt Zelensky and the people around him. But he's just in the last month, he's really tried to put a stop to that to try and continue losing support on that front. But no, he is a wartime leader. And Ukrainians still look up to him and know that He could have run away at the beginning, as many people in the West were saying he should do, and he didn't. President Zelensky, when you were with him, he awarded you with what is called the Order of Merit. Here it is. Days, weeks, and months of a difficult period for Ukraine, but very strong period. Thank you for for your big support. But I think we just hope that there's a real purpose for Germans. There's people around the world know what's happening here. And that may come with some injuries and some danger, but that's why we do it, because we know how important it is. So, you know, thank you very much. Appreciate it. There had to be a proud moment for you, Benjamin. It was. And, um, 
You know, I, I honestly think that this is not it's not about what I did. This is a reminder that journalism is important. And it's a reminder, of course, of Pierre and Sasha. You know, Pierre and Sasha both died that day and they risked their lives to tell stories about what was happening there. And I believe firmly that journalism changes the world. It opens people's eyes. It helps us make the world a better place and it holds people to account. And, and I think it should be a message that we won't stop reporting the news because of the dangers. We can't do that. We have to keep doing it. So very honored, of course, but um, it, you know, it was for all of us. And you were honored with the Kenneth Y. Tomlinson Award for Courageous Journalism at the Metropolitan Club in New York earlier this month. And I, I thought it was interesting you brought up Evan Gershkovich. He's the Wall Street Journal reporter who's currently in jail in Russia. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, just like myself, he has been injured, um, in, in a sense, by the Russians, um, because he was out there reporting. And there has not been a more firmer case of a country grabbing a journalist at it for no reason, but just to hold him as yeah. hostage. And that's a exactly spy, right? That they say he's a spy. Calling him, calling him a spy. And, um, you know, I think of him all the time. He's sitting in a, in a, in a prison cell in Russia. And, the big moves to try and do an exchange to get him out. And hopefully we will see that in the new year. But um, it's just a message that, you know, journalists are being attacked and we mustn't let it affect what we do. Two more things. One, how are you doing in your recovery? Well, I'm, I'm doing very, very well. Um, I think what you learn is uh, you learn a new schedule. You know, I can... I can know how far I can walk. I can walk for maybe 40 minutes at a time. And so I build my day around what I can and can't do. I walk at these periods and I have a little rest. And, and then you just develop a new schedule for life. So that's how I plan my day. And it means that life feels as normal as ever. I'm surrounded by my family. I'm back at home. I'm working again. And I couldn't have asked for anything more than that. So bring it on, you know, back at work and doing the job I love. Yeah. And, and we're honored to have you joining our ever-expanding podcast group here at Fox you have the Searching for Heroes with Benjamin Hall podcast. It launches, it goes out on Monday. Congratulations. And what's the focus, especially for uh, the first episode? Uh, well, it's been an absolute honor to do this. And, you know, my whole career has been about telling stories and traveling the world and meeting incredible people. And I just think that those are stories that our listeners need to need to hear more often. And my life was saved by people who risked their own lives to come and get me, real heroes, the, both the, the veterans who came in, but also the US military, military doctors. And I was absolutely amazed at the power of the good and the heroes and how it changes community and brings people together. And that's what the podcast is about. It is going out and searching for heroes, often in you know normal walk of life, who have done amazing things, gone through something really difficult, but have found a way to pull it together and gone on to help other people. So that's what the podcast is about. It's one that is inspirational. It reminds us all that no matter what you go through, you can come out of it stronger. And you asked about the first episode. It will be about myself. I'll be talking, you know, in depth about what it was like for me to go through that journey uh, from the very bottoms and the hardest period at the beginning when I thought I wasn't going to live right on through you know, to the other side and how that journey happened and what I want to pass on. So uh, I'm really honored to be doing it. And look, I work in TV usually and I get a few minutes to talk to guests. Suddenly I have much longer than that. And oh, I can yeah. tell you what, in like half an hour, you can really delve into people. What drives them? Why do they do these things? Why are they heroes? And what does that effect happen? And I've really enjoyed making it. And I hope everyone really enjoys listening to it too. Well, I look forward to it. And it's called Searching for Heroes with Benjamin Hall. It will launch, uh, come out on uh, Monday the 4th, and then it's going to be weekly uh, after that. So uh, we very much look forward to that here on the Fox News Podcast Network. 
Network. Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent, back at work, back from Ukraine, going back. It was great to hear from you, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Dave. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Meet the American who... Pepperidge Farm. Although you may not know her name, you definitely tossed one or two of her snacks into your shopping cart. Margaret Fogarty was born in Tudor City, an Eastside neighborhood in Midtown Manhattan in 1897. In her teens, Fogarty moved to Flushing, Queens, where she graduated as valedictorian of her high school class, proving her proficient knowledge of math and finance. She pursued a job on Wall Street, where she met and married Henry Albert Rudkin, and the pair later purchased a 125-acre farm in Fairfield, littered with pepperidge trees. However, farm life was less than idyllic. The Rudkins' youngest son, Mark, suffered from severe allergies, prompting Margaret to learn how to bake using fresh, stone-ground whole wheat, an ingredient disappearing from shelves to favor processed white bread. After many failed attempts, Rudkin perfected her bread flavored with a generous amount of butter, milk, honey, and molasses. In order to adequately meet her son's dietary needs, she brought the bread to her doctor for approval. Where he loved it so much, he began recommending other physicians prescribe it to their patients. Soon after, the Rudkins had a mail-order business selling Pepperidge Farm bread to families all across Connecticut. After the success of their bread, Margaret decided to pitch her product to the famed Charles & Company, where the manager loved the product so much, he ordered 24 loaves. Rudkin baked her bread fresh overnight and sent it with her husband to drop off in Manhattan as he commuted to work. Eventually, Pepperidge Farm outgrew its original space in Fairfield, and the Rudkins continued their business from a rental space in Norwalk throughout the 40s and the 50s. In 1961, Campbell's Soup Company bought Pepperidge Farm. However, Margaret continued to run the company she loved by becoming the first woman to secure a seat on the Campbell Board of Directors. While traveling through Europe in the 50s, Rudkin discovered a peculiar little cracker shaped like fish in Switzerland. In 1962, Pepperidge Farm introduced goldfish snacks to the U.S., and today the crackers are found in more than one in three American households. Margaret passed away June 1, 1967, after suffering from breast cancer. However, her products continue to thrive in American culture several decades later. You can go to the lifestyle section at foxnews.com to find more of these incredible stories. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes, launching December the 4th. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Stephen Moore. What's on your mind? One of the most enduring lessons of American history is that banning liquor sales and consumption, what was called the noble experiment, was actually a colossal failure. Drinking didn't go down much, but the profits ended up going not to the legitimate businesses, but to bootleggers and the mob, while the murder rate in the United States soared to an all-time high. It was the policy that made America's most famous gangster, Al Capone, famous and rich. I was reminded of this when I saw recently that the Biden administration's Food and Drug Administration wants to ban menthol cigarettes. Menthol flavorings account for approximately 40% of cigarette sales. That demand will not disappear, but will be driven underground, creating more significant risks to consumers. 
90 years after the failure of prohibition, we're going to try it again with smokers. Ironically, many of the same liberals who campaigned for three decades for the legalization of marijuana and other softer drugs now want to effectively ban smoking. The FDA's proposed rule would prohibit menthol as a characterizing flavor in cigarettes and all characterizing flavors. The government justifies its action because it has, quote, the potential to significantly reduce disease and death from combusted tobacco product use, unquote. That sounds a lot like a reprise of what the Temperance League tried to do back in the early 20th century, when alcohol prohibition was set to save lives. But even if all these virtuous results were true, since when is the United States government empowered to regulate the health and riskiness of America's personal habits? Don't we have a right as Americans to do things that are sometimes bad for us? Or do we slouch toward a nanny state? There are a lot of dangerous activities that Americans take up all the time and derive pleasure from. Rock climbing is risky. Parachuting out of the airplanes is risky. Driving a motorcycle is risky. And eating too much sugar can be very risky too. We should have learned from the mostly failed war on drugs that the main impact was to enrich drug dealers. Instead of the government getting funds by taxing pot, as many states do now, the money went to the drug cartels. The strangest and most illogical thing of all about this call to ban menthol cigarettes is that it comes at a time when smoking is rarer today than at any time in at least 100 years, and probably since the founding of our country. In the last 60 years, smoking is down by more than 60% for virtually all age groups, especially among the young. Anti-smoking education campaigns are working. Don't change a winning strategy. An FDA prohibition could backfire by making smoking cool and sexy again. When I was in high school, my friends and I would occasionally head to the beach and puff on a marijuana joint. Part of the thrill was precisely that it was illegal. We were teenage rebels without a cause, and we were acting like James Dean. We should also consider that the government is also collecting billions of dollars of tax revenues from smokers. Driving cigarette sales underground puts the money in the hands of the criminals, not the government. Yes, for sure, keep cigarettes out of the hands of kids, absolutely. But let's let adults, not the government, regulate smoking. I'm Stephen Moore for Fox News, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and economist with Freedom Works. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.